HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality. You're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by La Crusade, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled castware cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lacrusade.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. Welcome to Season 2 of Modernist Breadcrumbs. I'm your host, Jordan Werner Berry. I learned a lot about bread from producing the first season of Modernist Breadcrumbs. I learned that its two basic shapes are balls and sticks. I learned the importance of oven spring. And I learned that it has fueled revolution, both cultural and political, throughout history. All that knowledge hasn't helped my baking skills very much, but hey... I've got a whole nother season to figure that part out. It's the stories of bread that draw me to it, and we're building on where we started last year. We're looking at the discoveries and techniques from Nathan Mirvold and Francisco Magoya's massive tome, Modernist Bread. And we're interviewing the bakers, scientists, chefs, millers, and authors who are shaping bread's future. We'll take a deep dive into the microbial world, focus on fermentation, hype up heritage grains, and rediscover regional breads across America. Because what the heck is salt-rising bread anyway? We'll detect lies about bagels and pretzels, teach you how to DIY a tandoor oven, and head home for the holidays with a cornucopia of breads. Through all of that, 
we'll also step back and look at how bread intersects with culture, immigration, art, and tradition. So fire up your oven and follow the breadcrumbs. It seems only natural and appropriately poetic to start this season talking about starters. They're the inception of the loaf, the first step. Sure, you don't need a starter to make bread. Commercial yeast is fast and it's efficient. But the story of cultivating yeast from the environment around us, whether you call it starter, culture, levan, or mother, is what we're focusing on today, from microbes to miche. To get things rolling, I'm sitting down with our executive producer, Michael Harlan Turkel. Last year, besides hosting season one of Modernist Breadcrumbs, MHT wrote and photographed his first cookbook, Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar. The book, which won the IACP Award for Culinary Travel Writing, is a chronicle of his search for vinegar in all its acidic glory all around the world. We know that this is a bread podcast, not a vinegar podcast, but there's a strong family resemblance. Mothers. Well, it's a really broad and misunderstood term in the realm of vinegar. Um, And being someone who's slightly proficient in bread baking and understand what a mother is cross-contextually in the the world of fermentation, um, they all do different things. You know, uh, a sourdough starter is a culture that creates a flavor, and it's really place-based. That's why you have San Francisco sourdough, and it's cultivated in, in, in this way that it's it's personal, and uh, people have stories behind them, whereas vinegar mothers can be attributed to that as well, um, but I think there's a little BS there. This sounds like a hot take. What kind of BS are you talking about? You can buy vinegar mothers online, you can trade with people, but it's this thing that sometimes hyper-accelerates a process that doesn't need to be sped up. Um, same way that starters and sourdough kind of supercharge that fermentation. But vinegar mothers are like scobies and kombucha, this symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast that floats on the top and looks very cool, like a skin-like layer. It's mainly cellulose. Um, that helps convert alcohol into acetic acid. But if there's too much mother, uh, it can suffocate the solution underneath. And I've been told to call that an umbrella mother. No, wait. I've been told to call that a helicopter mother. I didn't know that term up until I started touring the book. So vinegar does better with free-range parenting. So a mother's a really great indicator, but it's not a necessity. It's something that tells you how quickly or how steadily the process of converting this alcohol into acetic acid is working. And again, like it, it's not, it's this weird preconcept that everyone thinks you need to dump it in. But when you put that in whatever culture you're trying to turn into vinegar, you're sometimes stripping away nuance and flavor and aroma and essence and, and really story. So do you feed a mother in vinegar the same way you do with a sourdough starter? I think it's the other way around, that a mother kind of feeds off whatever the substance is. You create a hospitable environment for a mother. I mean, talking about this from a, from a family hierarchy, uh, you know, kids drive their mothers crazy and likewise. But really, it's there to nurture or foster something along. And in vinegar, it's this protective layer. And 
once it becomes, you know, that, that helicopter mother, you know, reaches the sides and kind of becomes overbearing and smothers what's underneath, that's when that substance underneath can't express itself. It's like if it really wanted to be in a grunge band, but its mother insisted it play classical violin. Why do we anthropomorphize these starters in both vinegar and in bread? What do we get out of giving them these human characteristics? I mean, I think we hope the end product to have some kind of personality. And we hope that it's derivative of that mother or whatever, you know, we start it with or feed it of. So what's the strangest personality you've encountered? Uh, well, I'll tell you about the worst vinegars I've ever made. There are certain enzymes and elements and fruits and vegetables that I've made vinegars out of that I didn't know were going to act in specific ways. You know, fruits that have a lot of pectin will help aggregate larger, thicker mothers. Um, but tomatoes in specific, uh, it was wild what happened. Juiced a whole bunch of tomatoes, uh, up the sugar so it was the right level to convert into alcohol, um, and then acetic acid. But the mother itself was half the size of the barrel, and it suffocated. It suffocated, and everything underneath it died, and the yeast was putting out these indol flavors. And indol is just a nice way of saying poop and shit and farts. Uh, so... I kept on trying to test it and like, oh, it's going to turn a corner. It's going to get better. It's just this awkward stage. You know, it's in its teens. Uh, <laughs> and it was literally the worst thing I've ever made, smelled, tasted that is supposedly in the edible spectrum. Teen mom was not helpful. No, God. <laughs> Isn't that an MTV show? Sure is. The analogy holds up for that, too. Terrible parenting. <laughs> very, very bad. But it was the first time that I realized that a mother, you know, could be detrimental, could be too much for vinegar. Um, it certainly hyper-accelerated this process and, you know, suffocated everything underneath, ate everything that was there and you know, instead of looking for other food sources, just became dormant and died. Uh, yeah, it's a wild thing. And I would never take that mother and introduce it to another culture in the same way that, you know, I wouldn't take a bad sourdough starter and try to make bread out of it. You know, you have to cultivate a good starter to make a great bread. Uh, you can't just say, oh, I've gone through the process. Um, this is fine, and it will make, you know, a fine bread. You, you want to start with the best starter possible to create the best end result. Whether they're helicopter mothers or more free range, teen moms or generations old, starters, especially in bread, can have strong personalities and the punny names to go along with them. The name of my starter is It Started From The Bottom, Now We're Here, a.k.a. Drake. Adam Levine. Or Avril Levine. Gaseous Clay. This is Brett in Lexington, Kentucky. And since we're in the heart of horse country, it's only fitting that my starter is called The Thoroughbred. Gal Gadot. And, and we went and borrowed a starter from a baker friend, and their starter was named Calvin. So we thought, oh, we should name ours Hobbs. Bread Bundy. And Sir Isaac Luton. Jane Doe. Jane Doe and John Doe. <laughs> Bread Pitt. The Yeasty Boys. Now, if those were all characters on an MTV show, we might watch it. One of our favorite starter names comes from Sarah Owens, a baker, author, and horticulturist here in New York City. She operates Ritual Fine Foods and is the author of Toast and Jam and the James Beard Award-winning Sourdough. Sarah's starter story is a tale as old as time. 
Yeah, so my starter has gone through many iterations of um, personalities and names <laughs> accordingly. Um, I think, you know, my starter began as this very vivacious, bubbling um, concoction that would often, you know, spill over the top of the jar. I was really, you know, very convinced that I should be feeding my starter with white uh, refined white bread flour. And I did that for a very long time. And so it had a very particular personality because of that. And then I began using different types of flowers to feed and maintain my starters. And it kind of went through this um, personality change. And now I maintain my starter pretty much solely with rye flour. And it has completely changed the character of the starter and how it affects the dough. During those changes, Sarah's starter moved with her from Brooklyn to Kentucky and back to New York. But when I moved back to New York, I moved to the beach. And so the atmospheric conditions completely changed. My rye starter became this really um, kind of aggressive beast. (laughs) And so now it's named the beast. (laughs) The beast has a tough exterior, but its aggression gives it some serious leavening power. Prince or not, we want to give our starters a fairy tale life. And that means a safe and loving home. I think, well, it's it's funny because we tend to anthropomorphize our starters, (laughs) which I think is a good thing because it encourages us to become somewhat emotionally attached to our starter. And I think when that happens, we have a tendency to want to take care of it more. You know, with baking in general, whether it's with sourdough or another type of leavening agent, but especially with sourdough, it's really important to try and adhere to some consistency. And that often means a ritualistic schedule of feeding but also creating and allowing the the dough to ferment. And so I think um, this can be something that becomes a very grounding activity. But that said, you also have to be responsive. And with seasonal changes, with um, differences in different types of flowers that you're using, especially if you're using uh, local grains that are stone ground, It becomes really important to be flexible within the ritual. We can get behind ritual as long as our starters aren't morning people. But how can you tell your starter is awake and ready to use? Sarah explains a quick way to test if your starter is fully fermented. The float test. If you can just fill a glass with water and um, take an undisturbed scoop of starter and drop it into the water... If enough carbon dioxide gas is trapped within the gluten network of the starter, it will float. And that's an indication that you have a happy, active starter that's ready to work for you. When she brought up the float test, all we could think of was Sarah taking the beast out for a long walk on the beach. She hasn't gone that far, but she has brought a bit of the beach back to her bakery. I have actually harvested seawater 
to make bread, and it's a little saltier than what I would typically make a loaf of bread to be, but um, it is this kind of beautiful connection with what's going on outside and um, the microbes that I'm trying to cultivate in the bakery. (laughs) Ah, microbes. As much story and personality as our starters can have, Baking is really just applied microbiology. All yeast breads and sourdoughs owe their shapes and textures to the actions of microbes. But what are they anyway? Erin McKenney is a microbial ecologist, conducting her postdoctoral research at North Carolina State University. Erin works in Rob Dunn's lab, studying the communities of microbes that live in sourdough starters. In a perfect felicity for this episode about mothers, We caught Erin while she's on maternity leave. I I love the double entendre. I'm always a fan of a good pun. Um, And for me, science and and especially bread is full of puns. I was giving talks when I was pregnant. It was nice to be able to say I had a bun in the oven. It felt very um, context appropriate for sourdough. Um, for the context of, of the term mother, though, I think that really speaks to the constant care and tending that these sourdough starters require. Um, and that feels unique to me among many fermented foods. Each starter does tend to have a life and a personality of its own. Um, I have starters in my fridge. I've gone from 14 starters at the beginning of the year to um, in preparation for the little one. I've decreased down to three. So I really had to kind of uh, wean myself uh, if we continue this metaphor. Erin's research is part of the Sourdough Project, which is a global citizen science effort aiming to understand the biology of sourdough starters around the world and how they change or don't over time. So bread has been a staple of our diet and and, uh, a way of life for us as humans across the globe for, you know, an, an incredibly long time. and microbial cultures lie at the heart of that sourdough starter we now know, um, and and therefore at the heart of human culture, right? Human culture seems to be based on microbial cultures. So that means that all of these microbes that coat our bodies and that live in our food and in our GI tracts um, and that are all over the food when we buy it from the grocery store and that colonize the flour and water that we mix together to create a sourdough starter They all have the potential to do wonderful things for us. The Sourdough Project asked bakers worldwide to send samples of their starters to the lab in the mail. I bet the U.S. Postal Service in North Carolina was a little wary of all those bubbling, blob-filled packages. We had over a thousand people sign up and say they were interested and to answer questions about their sourdough starters, how often they feed it, what type of flour they feed it, what they bake with it where they got it from, if they uh, grew it from scratch or got it from a provider, or if they were given it by a um, a relative or a friend, um, and where it's been and where they live, and if they have pets, just all of the metadata that you could possibly think of surrounding, you know, the, these bakers' habits. The project ended up with 560 participants from 17 countries. That's 560 different personalities, personal histories, and a whole lot of data. There are three types of yeast that are typically used 
to make commercial breads, and they're, they tend to be three various strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, so that's one species. So compared to in the sourdough samples that we've seen, um, we've identified at least 71 different types of yeast. And that's just the yeast. There are, you know, there are so many, there are so many more bacteria uh, that occur in these starters than we thought existed as well. Um, and they do tend to still produce lactic acid bacteria, or lactic acid. Um, so lactic acid is, is a compound that tastes sour, so it contributes to that tangy uh, flavor that gives sourdough its name. Um, but still, you know, to have identified so many different types of microbes than were previously known to exist in bread, uh, it's pretty incredible. The response that the team received from around the world wasn't just because we all wanted to send our starters to college. It's citizen science in action. And integrating that idea even further, Erin brought sourdough into the curriculum she uses with local, middle, and high school students. So I asked all the students to bring a quarter cup of flour from home, and we grew microbes from their flour samples. I mean, there were there were several students who brought white flour, and several brought whole wheat, and a few brought coconut flour and almond flours. We grew the bacteria and the yeast from all those different types of flours, and uh, we did identify a lot of diversity um, based on colonies uh, and, and how they looked growing on the plates. That sounds way better than the frog dissection I remember from high school science. And the results were real. Aaron's students identified an enormous diversity of microorganisms, and they saw patterns in the data. Whole grain flours tended to have more yeast growing, with less lactobacillus. With white flour, it was the opposite. The Dunn Lab has recently launched an expansion of that curriculum, both to encourage students to gather data on the biology of the starters they make, and to get kids baking and thinking that food has an inherent science. What I love about the sourdough project is that truly what you need uh, to participate is flour and water. So there's not only uh, an empowerment in recognizing that, you know, you too can be a scientist today with the skills that you already have, um, but also that the thing that you create is then edible and, and you can nourish yourself. I mean, so we're, we're hel- I'm helping to address, I hope, uh, both an educational equity and food equity. The Sourdough Project isn't accepting any new starters right now, but there are still ways where you can be involved. The curriculum for their Sourdough for Science project is available online, and so are the instructions for New Year, New Bread, which is a challenge that involves each of us baking the exact same recipe and submitting a picture of the result. Because we'll all be baking from the same recipe, any differences in bubbles or crumb will be directly attributed to the microbes in our specific starters. We'll put links to both projects in the show notes. Let's share the loaf and help solve the mystery of bread. While you get your lab coat and goggles, we're going to take a quick break. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone ground products for decades. If you're inspired by all the personalities in this episode and want a sourdough starter of your own, The organic all-purpose flour from Bob's Red Mill is a perfect place to, well, start. It's a premium baking flour, freshly milled from certified organic hard red wheat. 
Mix it with an equal weight of water, stir it up, and let it sit. That's all it takes. Within a couple days, it's going to start bubbling, and you'll have your very own sourdough starter. Name it, feed it, treat it like a member of the family. It's like having a pet that you don't have to take for walks. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. That's a great way to start every loaf. Visit bobsredmill.com and use code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely, you're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they've been a favorite for generations through the meals it creates and the style it expresses. My grandmother had a Le Creuset Dutch oven in that iconic flame color, and I can still picture it on her stovetop with a stew bubbling away inside. I think of her every time I use mine, even though it's more often filled with bread than with stew. If you're trying to recreate a soft, chewy interior and perfectly brown crust at home, a Dutch oven is the perfect tool. Just take almost any recipe for a country boule to start and drop the proof dough in a piping hot, preheated Dutch oven. Bake with the lid on to capture steam in that coveted oven spring, then take the lid off and continue baking for perfectly browned and crunchy crust. Superior heat retention, a precision lid, and proprietary enamel make it all possible, and only from La Crusade. Visit lacrusade.com backslash bread to explore their entire collection of cast iron cookware and search their recipe page to get started. Enjoy special offers and free shipping with code BREAD. Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. So far this episode, we've talked about our mothers, run through a roster of starter names, and become mad citizen scientists. Aaron McKenney introduced us to the Dunlab's Sourdough Project, and now we'll hear more about its potential applications from her boss, Rob Dunn. Rob is a professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University and at the Natural History Museum in Denmark. So I started off as a tropical ecologist and uh, mostly working in the Amazon and trying to figure out the basic rules by which species interact. Eventually, as I settled in North Carolina and started to teach classes here, it became clear that a lot of the things that I studied in faraway places were also happening in different ways in people's backyards. And, and then it became clear that those sorts of things were also happening in houses. And, and so we, we sort of drifted, my lab collectively drifted from jungles to backyards to bedrooms to kitchens. And so in the context of sourdough, we really wanted to think about What's the biology of those sourdough starters, and how does it relate to the biology of the people making those starters, and how does it relate to the stories and culture of those people? From actual jungles to concrete jungles to concrete countertops. Once they arrived, we then took some of that starter, and we extracted the DNA from it, and then we decoded that DNA to figure out, well, which species were in each of these starters. Then what we do once we've decoded that DNA is we can start to compare these starters from different places, from different families, to start to see what the big picture looks like. They're using the metadata that Aaron mentioned earlier, each starter's story, together with the DNA. With all that information, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book. There's so many questions to answer and research and paths to follow. 
Is this R.A. Montgomery's Lost on the Amazon or Space and Beyond? Immediately, we started to see cool things. And so, for example, uh, there's a fungus that's in a bunch of the Australian starters that, that seems to be nowhere else on Earth. And we don't know very much about it, but already that suggests, well, here's something about the biodiversity of Australia that makes Australian bread potentially just a little bit different. As a fermentation nerd, the geography-based difference has me all fired up. Are sourdough starters expressing terroir? Can we make an Australian sourdough in Brooklyn if we use the right fungus? And so with the lactobacillus, for example, if we can figure out what what leads some starters to have a really sour uh, strain and others to have a less sour strain, we can also help people think about, well, how do I make a starter that has the kind of flavor and aroma that I like? And so one of the things we're doing now is to try to figure out for most of those species, what are all of their genes? So can we link flavors we know from those individual species um, to the genes that they have and what those genes are doing to make those flavors? We've heard of designer dogs. So why not have the labradoodle and puggle of sourdough starters? I had a conversation with a, a Korean chef, and, and she was saying that um, in Korean there's a word, ma, which means hand flavor, and it speaks to the flavor that the chef um, gives to the food and literally through the chef's hands. And so it got us really wondering, you know, is there a hand flavor in bread? To what extent does the baker in, in making the bread and and physically touching the ingredients that go in the starter actually contribute some of the microbes to these starters. What do your hands taste like? When I was a little kid, I insisted that I was sucking my thumb because it tasted like chocolate. But that was more excuse-making toddler logic than microbiology. The lab has been able to show that bakers do tend to share more microbes with their starters than they were expecting by chance. Make sure to wash your hands, everybody. When you make your starter, you're actually giving something of yourself. Um, and one of the really interesting things that that raises is that in the context of all these stories people tell us about, you know, their great-grandma's starter, their great-grandpa's starter, their friend from another continent, they anthropomorphize those starters, but is there something more to it? Is there, are there actual microbial cells that are descendants of the microbes from those relatives? And our evidence so far suggests that that's, that's very... Uh, conceivable. This is giving a whole new meaning to heritage starters. Thanks for the microbes, Grandma. That's one way we can look. The other is that you might imagine over time that there are individual strains that actually evolve in those starters and persist in them through time. In that context, you know, maybe there were, you know, 10 species in the beginning and 10 at the end, and they've changed a little bit. Um, And so that, that part's not stable. But maybe at the same time, you know, the key lactobacillus strain is actually the the same one and a kind of unique one. So the big question now is, are the strains the same through time? Uh, I'll bet a six-pack of nice beer with with some listener um, on on this, is that the the community changes in response to how warm the starter is, what its conditions are. But some of those strains, individual strains, persist. I forgot to ask Rob if he's more into IPA or Kolsch. Maybe he'll take a beer bread. Anybody willing to take that bet? But he got me thinking about evolution. These strains have to adapt to their surroundings, right? If so, could the microbes do the equivalent of growing tails? 
Yeah, I think they could grow tails. So imagine you have two species of bacteria that are in a starter for 100 years. From a bacterial perspective, that's, you know, that's more generations than there have been human generations since the evolution of humans. And so it's entirely possible that if one of those is producing, for example, a lot of acid, that another of the species might be able to get away with producing less acid. But you might expect the genes for lactic acid production to be shut off in that microbe and the and new genes to emerge for other kinds of metabolism. Microbiologically, that would be a tail. Might even be some wings. <laughs> Maybe I'm amazed, but Nathan Mirvold wouldn't be. Nathan is the founder of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread. If we're thinking about evolution here, we have to consider that it's how we ended up with these microbes in the first place. A live-and-let-die situation. Microbes really hate sharing their food. Um, They really, really hate it. And so they have evolved, or many microbes have evolved a, a means of keeping it to themselves, which is to piss out poison. And they piss out a poison that they can stand and other microbes can't. For yeast, that poison is ethanol. For lactobacillus, it's lactic acid. Sourdough culture is a community of lactobacillus and yeast. Uh, and those lactobacillus and yeast uh, – are semi-cooperative in the sense that they can both tolerate some of each other's poison. So that happy accident is why we have um, sourdough. Uh, It could have been that we didn't have two things that could tolerate each other or that one of the things that tolerated the other one would be toxic to us. Um, That would be quite bad. Thinking about that cooperation, Nathan digs a little deeper into what Rob was saying about changes in the culture community over time. Is it domestic bliss? Your flower is full of all kinds of things. The air is full of all kinds of things. So your culture is constantly being challenged by a host of other organisms trying to invade. Uh, And the relative count of the bacteria of each different strain will change because their uh, reproduction rate is exponential in time with each of these factors, acidity, temperature, so forth. So at the right temperature, one of them will be doubling and doubling and doubling, and the other will be sitting there saying, damn it, I want my favorite temperature. Ah, microbes. They're just like us fighting with their roommates about the thermostat. Because you have um, this exponential growth or decline in the population of each strain with different characteristics, if you maintain something in constant temperature, it'll stay pretty much the same. Now, if you say, well, look, I feed it religiously, and oh, but I don't control the temperature, you would probably find if you did a quantitative sequencing of your Uh, starter, you would discover that there were way more bacteria or yeast of some strains than others at different times a year. Um, Now, is that the same culture? Well, (laughs) you know, I'd like to think I'm the same person, but I've, (laughs) uh, over my lifespan, but boy, I've been a lot of different weights and heights and everything else. 
Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Who really eats like that anyways? Now, if Nathan had been fed at the same time every day and kept at the same temperature. As a result, if you have the, quote, same, unquote, sourdough uh, culture, but you maintain it under different conditions, you're in fact going to get an entirely different culture. If you're extremely careful and you have very controlled conditions and everything is very sterilized and you use the proper sterile technique and you use something called a laminar flow hood that flows air that has been filtered to remove all spores and other things from it, you can propagate a culture almost indefinitely. And that's what um, microbiology labs do. The idea that a home baker or a bakery has the same sourdough uh, culture over a long period of time is statistically very unlikely unless they are using the full-on protocols of a microbiology lab. The Limiter Flow Hood store might sell out after this episode. The biggest takeaway is everything that you can do to promote consistency is going to make life easier for you and for your starter. It's still chaos, and every loaf is different but it's consistent chaos. When you write 2,642 pages about bread, you've got to have a consistent foundation. Francisco Magoya, head chef at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, is going to introduce us to the starters that built Modernist Bread. And so, yes, we have so many cheesy names for them. I mean, mine is LeBon James. Um, we have uh, Sir Yeast a lot because uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot is from Seattle, so it's, it seemed to be appropriate. Uh, we also have Ryan, Ryan Seacrest, uh, and it's Ryan spelled like R-Y-E-A-N. Um, so it, it's a term of endearment, too, and that's why we give it ridiculous names and not a name like, you know, John Smith because – you know, then that doesn't really resonate or make sense, really. Um, so we do we do give them those, like, pet names, if you will. Thankfully, Francisco likes bread puns as much as we do. It helps to give you ownership over it and, yes, give it a – it is a living thing, you know. You know, it doesn't have a face and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get excited to see you, but – it is uh, – it's a living thing and once you name it, it's – you're making it a very personal thing. You're making it yours. Everybody that uh, works here, well, at least in the kitchen, has their own starter that they care for and maintain. And just to be clear, there's many different kinds of starters. And the ones that I'm specifically talking about, these are what are called you know, sourdough starters. Uh, some people call them leavens, levans. Uh, white sours. There's like all these different names for it. If you take really good care of your starter and it reaches its full potential, it could end up an all-star, like LeVon James. The starter beat the basketball player into the Hall of Fame. But don't worry, LeBron fans. The basketball reference Hall of Fame probability says he's a lock. Parados has this sourdough library. And um, there's, there's a person who's in charge. He's like the sourdough librarian. 
Okay, so it's more of a library than a Hall of Fame. But Francisco is talking about the Parado Sourdough Library in St. Vith, Belgium. Carl de Smet is the sourdough librarian. And he's working in the stacks to conserve and promote sourdoughs, ensuring the survival of the biodiversity and strains for the future. I think they've already gone over 100 starters. I know this because we're 102. Or that's our number. And they have starters from all over the world. They, all of them have some sort of significance, symbolism, and so forth. You can take a virtual tour of the Parado Sourdough Library. And be sure to give LeVon James a wave while you're there. So they maintain it. They have it there. It's really cool to have some really pretty obscure ones. They have some that are just, I would say, normal, like ours. Like ours is a normal one, but it was associated with this book uh, that is, is, is like a massive undertaking. So it has that significance. While story and biodiversity are worth preserving, that doesn't mean that we all need to go out and build our own libraries. Old is cool. But it isn't necessary to make a great loaf. If somebody gives you here, this is a portion of my 100-year starter, it's very nice that they're thinking of you in those terms and that, you know, that you've been deemed special enough to have some of it. But it doesn't, beyond that sort of emotional meaning, it doesn't, it doesn't have any meaning to the bread itself. You can make a fantastic bread with a three-month-old starter. Uh, and with some one that claims that it's 100 years old, you can also make a good... If, it, if it's healthy enough, you'll also make a very good bread. So, you know, if, if you forgot to feed your really old starter, don't worry about it. It's not... You're not killing it. I mean, you might kill it, but you can start a new one, and it's fine. And if you do have to start over, just think of it as an opportunity to come up with a punny new name. I'm thinking Don Corlevon or Mama Cass. If we're telling the story of bread, our starters are a great place to, um, start. We give them funny names. I'm thinking of you, Kentucky Thoroughbred. And we spend time with them every day. And we even hand them down through generations. They may not be the same after a hundred years or even a hundred days, but it's just part of the story. And what's a story without a little bit of character evolution? So whether you've got a laminar flow hood keeping things steady or the beast is running wild, don't forget to thank your mother for all she's done. This has been Episode 9 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Mother May I. In the next episode, we'll gather the troops for a grain revolution. Special thanks this week to Sarah Owens, Brett Wolf. Sarah Kay, Ellen King, Aaron McKinney, and Rob Dunn. Shout out to Kentucky Thoroughbred, Drake Hobbs, The Beast, LaVon James, Sir Yeastalot, Ryan Seacrest, and all the starter names out there. Even you, John Smith. We loathe you. Modernist Breadcrumbs is produced by executive producer Michael Harlan Turkel and me, Jordan Werner Berry, in collaboration with Modernist Cuisine. Our audio engineer is Noam Osband. Our theme music is composed by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lose. Hear more on Instagram at Carol Cleveland Sings. Modernist Breadcrumbs is a production of Heritage Radio Network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Mm-hmm.